0: Welcome to Meetings with Remarkable Educators. This podcast is brought to you in part by you, our friends and supporters at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators. Each podcast is a dialogue between me, Ba Lovemore, and an educator who sees the greatness in their students and touches the whole of their being. These educators defy generalizations, so here's a little bit about what they've done and how I know them. Today's guest on Meetings with Remarkable Educators is Kevin Hawkins, and he joins us from Prague in the Czech Republic. Kevin is a man who later in his life came to understand the power of mindfulness and to bring it forward in the educational environments, and that includes international education environments. One of the things I appreciate most about Kevin is he brings mindfulness from a much deeper place than some of the more superficial approaches that have found their way both into business, into education, and seem to permeate our society. So for a real in-depth look at what is mindfulness and how to bring it forward, I'm thrilled to be able to work with Kevin Hawkins today. Welcome, Kevin, and thank you so much for joining us today. It's just really a pleasure, and I especially enjoy um, people who have traveled Earth, who have connected to so many different cultures, and yet bring this very powerful message of the importance of personhood and the importance of who we are to the educational forum. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Well, thank you. I really appreciate being able to contribute to your beautiful podcast series. Wonderful. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And let's just jump right in. Um, I, you have brought the very powerful notion of mindfulness uh, to the educational community. And I do want to just comment that you're, I'd like you to comment on your background because it's substantive in ways most people aren't familiar with and also will help put to rest some of the more uh, superficial aspects of mindfulness that sometimes tre- creep into education.
1: Mm. Mindfulness,
0: yeah. yeah. So tell me a little bit about your background and also how that translated to your work right now.
1: I guess... Um, In terms of the mindfulness aspect, um, my background really probably began when I went out to India in the 1970s. I was part of that overland hippie trail group. You know, I was just at the end of the hippie (laughs) era, the late 70s, not with the first wave, but just before that route got closed because of political um, strife really through Afghanistan. So I went out overland to India, and I wasn't consciously going to find myself or you know learn to meditate or anything but um just exploring the world as we were able to do you know at a young age and of course as you do i ended up almost by accident i guess uh in an ashram in in Pondicherry not the Sri Aurobindo one but the, a local ashram with some indian people i was staying with <clears throat> and they took me along to their meditation like you would take a guest to church i guess and um, i just I had no instruction. I just did what everybody else did, what I thought you were supposed to do. And nothing happened. (laughs) (laughs) So I went away. I came back the next night with no expectations, but I thought, I'll do it again. And I did have a a very strong experience that uh, I'd never had before. um, And it really impacted me. And so when I went back to England, I began to explore that more.
0: But uh, typically, Indian or Vedanta or Hinduism doesn't really have a strong particular focus on mindfulness. Um, was that a meditation a mindfulness? I mean, all meditation is in a way, of course, we know that. But wasn't the mindfulness, for instance, that you uh, engaged later on in your life?
1: No, I, that's right, in, in a sense. Although just that, um, the quieting, sitting with your own self and allowing for something to arise something powerful within yourself or or outside of yourself that you can connect to sometimes when you're in a a calm state. That's kind of what happened to me. Later on, when I went back to England, I did explore a more Buddhist approach, but I was very sporadic. I did yoga and Tai Chi for many years, but I, I didn't really meditate regularly. But it was actually in my early 50s when I was here at middle school principal here in Prague, and quite a difficult time in my life. My parents got ill and died quite quite close together and I was going through a divorce and I was also the, running a busy school, three teenage kids. So just that, you know, accumulation of life
0: experience. <laughs> that, yeah, that's quite an accumulation. Yeah, for sure, can happen
1: to anybody. Yes. And it was all a bit too much and I was close to burnout and just out of the blue, somebody gave me a copy of, what is it for the book by Eckhart Tolle, Power of Presence. And I just read two pages of it at sitting at home one Saturday morning in the kitchen table and it just gave me that sensation that i had had earlier on in my life when i've been introduced more to this of space and calm and i thought you know this is exactly what i need now and so i did some training in it for myself and i used that mindfulness training it was a secular mindfulness training that i did at that time um to really help myself deal with emotion grief to process things and to just be able to cope basically and found it highly beneficial, you know, very practical skills that I could apply on a daily basis. And, um, you know, as I came out of that kind of darker period, I began to think these are simple life skills that I'm learning really. You know, using your attention, calm, focus, grounding, using the breath and kids could learn that stuff. You know, why didn't I offer this to middle school children in my school, which is what I did, a voluntary class for students. And, um, Then I looked around and found other people who were just developing courses in the UK at that time, and they'd they'd done a more skillful job than I had of putting together a program for young people. So I tried out their early versions with my students, and it kind of grew from there. And after that, teachers got interested, parents got interested, and it kind of spread
0: well you know it's interesting to me because that that first experience when it has that deep resonance uh resonance when we grow into that it's it's a being quality it's a self quality and it's not really subject to the vagaries of memory or even linear time it's more there's a wholeness that happens and then it, it it so when we return, it's like almost like we never left in a certain way. Like there is that, and that's just fantastic. Well, did you were the middle kids' schools uh, receptive to it? Uh, your first, your first experience?
1: Yes, I mean I think because it was especially because it was voluntary. So I ran a twelve week. We had exploratory clock classes. Kids could choose, you know, from a range of really nice options. Actually, as part of curriculum time, and so I set small groups, twelve fifteen kids would sign up to take this 12-week program. And, um, you know, I had more time than I needed in some ways. We had plenty of time for discussion and practice. And I would say some kids found it a bit boring, you know, and many kids found it interesting. And some kids who were dealing with some life stresses at that time or who had a learning difficulty in some way, they were the ones who seemed to, to pick up on it more quickly. Some of them repeated the course a couple of times, three times even, one of them. Mm-hmm. because they knew right away there's something here they could use in their lives. Others, it took time. And, you know, more typically, they found an outlet through sports, you know, through using it on the basketball court that, in that way. When kids make a connection for themselves, for something practical, then those individuals really get it. We, in the high school, we began to do it as a compulsory programs for 18-year-olds. And, you know, it's harder then when you're forced to do this. Um, it's great if it's voluntary we still try to do it in an invitational way so it feels like there's a space you know in a space to opt out in many ways really and i would say some of those kids would have said it was boring also in some ways you know we were not so skilled at delivering it in the early days but when we surveyed them all over 90 percent said this should be compulsory for all students so that they get the value of being introduced just the idea that that you can play an active role in your own mental health. If you need support or you need techniques or a toolkit at some point in your life, this stuff is available for you and there's ways you can study it further.
0: So what what were the skills? How did the skill sets evolve? I mean, you just mentioned that in the beginning. Of course, there were these challenges, or some challenges. What 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 needed to change, and how did it change? So you mean for the students, the skills we would work on, with them? or what you would bring to it as as a facilitator of oh, these yeah. skills?
1: Yeah, the, of course, the work we're doing these days really reflects those early experiences because it it totally comes down to our own ability to be present with the kids. So if I'm practicing for myself and if I'm using that presence in the classroom, I'm sensitive to what's happening inside of me at the same time as I'm delivering to the students. You know, I've got my message, my curriculum, my kind of objectives, but I'm also really able to try and be with the kids and create the space for learning that they need in order to explore this then that is key. You know, if, if I'm too in my head and I'm too analytical, and I am an analytical critical person, you know, that's where I started from. I'm not, no, I've done this stuff not because I'm kind of some chilled out dude or tell the kids, it's because I worry <laughs> a lot and I think a lot. You know, I, I needed to learn ways to unworry in a sense. But um, because I found I could apply it in a school day and within a moment, within a class with kids, then I felt I connected with kids better. And I think that was the key for me.
0: Well, wow. and so this grew, I mean, and also, in the midst of this, you mentioned a divorce and the challenges in that transition time of your life and I just want to say, Kevin, that that is something I find over and over when people make the leap from uh, we might say traditional approaches to education or trying to really allow. Uh, what we might call consciousness to unfold Uh, i just had a interview with a principal of a university in tibet who's beginning to ask whether josette and i want to come to work with their teacher trainers and we moved the we moved the conversation immediately into consciousness immediately into the whole person and whole being connection Mm -hmm. and he he got it and yeah. that blew my mind because i was a little concerned it would be constricted in a in a religious uh, a traditional sense right right so when you make this leap in this way and in, it often happens in transition i mean i've heard that from other people who have graced this podcast Was that also when you hooked up with your current mate? Because I know that you're working together now and have worked closely, right? Haven't you worked closely now for the last several years?
1: Yeah. Well, actually, um, I went through that difficult period and and went through the divorce and had some time really recollecting myself, um, you know, reconnecting with myself. And it wasn't till some years later that I actually uh, met, Amy, who's my wife. So I um, just was approached by somebody out of the blue when I started to work in the mindfulness arena who wanted me to work with her. She was thinking of starting an organization. Um, This is Kara Smith, a lady in in the Hague, American but living in the Hague. She just rang me out of the blue one night and said, would you like to be involved in a project around education and mindfulness? Um, And a bit later on, she invited Amy into the same group. So in the end, there were four of us, Amy Burke and Cara Smith. And then later on, there was um, Kristen Fort Catanese. So we became a small group, and we founded this organization, Mindwell. And then later on, Amy and I fell in love.
0: That's a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing it. And then, so it's through Mindwell that all your international work has, has unfolded?
1: Yes, it is. I mean, I think
0: Being an international school principal,
1: a lot of the the connections that I've had have have been with international schools. Um, So a lot of the early interest we got in the work was with other international schools. And these days we're branching more into state schools around the world and and other systems. But that's, that's where we started from, yeah.
0: I see. Could you talk a little bit about your uh, work with uh, schools from the the various countries and tell us something, if you would, about some of the differences or cultural challenges that you've had in translating or bringing this to such diverse uh, constituencies?
1: Well, you know, we are very lucky that when we travel, we get to meet some wonderful people um, in different countries, working with teachers in Japan and more recently um, in China. We've been um, working in China for the last two years and we will continue to do for a while. So you know, there's a very different culture to our own, and we worked in the international schools there. But also, we're working with a very good um, Chinese friend, Kevin Fong from from Hong Kong, who's living in Beijing, and he works as a translator with us when we go. But he's also a mindfulness teacher and trainer, MBs, MBsR teacher trainer, MBCT teacher trainer as well. So with him, we're trying to look at how do we introduce this gradually, but with integrity into China. So he's worked already with adults for many years in MBSR. Now we're trying to see about the next level of bringing it to teachers. So last year we had two series of of conferences and workshops with large groups of Chinese educators and social workers and psychologists who are interested in this whole arena. And, you you know, obviously China is a very different culture, very different approach. The education system is very competitive and intense, but people are people. And when we ask people, which we love to do all around the world, you know, it could be a, a, a big, rich international school or it could be a group of parents in the north of England or, or wherever we are, you know, what is it that you really want for your child you know, on a deeper level? And we do a little process of just simply asking them to visualize a child and check in with that heart area. You know, what, with that image of a child in mind, what is it that you really deeply want for that child? And, of course, the list that comes from parents and teachers doesn't matter where it is in the world. It's safety. It's happiness. It's self-confidence. It's the ability to make friends and connect. Now, academic achievement never comes up. Getting into Harvard never comes up, which isn't to say they don't have a go at teachers every day about that. But on a deeper level, what, what parents in China want, what parents all around the world want, it's the same kind of thing for their children
0: that is so important kevin i can't i can't emphasize how important it is the leap that's going to be made mm-hmm. is into our common humanity yeah into the wholeness of who we are and it's going to without disrespecting it's going to transcend it's going to carry forth the cultural aspects but not the cultural aspects in my opinion this is just my opinion Um, it's not going to carry forth those that inhibit the true tolerance and interconnectedness that we share as a species. And your comments just now serve that. My experience serves it. And that's what's going to have to spread.
1: That's absolutely. And and so that's why, um, you know, I haven't worked in, quotes, holistic schools. I've worked more in state schools and in international schools where we're, you know, before the mindfulness stuff that I was doing, to be honest, it's always been a part of my deeper motivation is to try and make schooling more authentic and connected for students, You know, to really get to that deeper level that, that really means something, to make it relevant and to engage students. And you know, when we look at these deeper qualities that, that we do share with people all around the world, I think then the question becomes for us as educators and as parents, how do we get a child's experience of school to get closer to some of those deeper qualities that that we want and that are in many schools' mission statements, of course, and some schools do a good job of getting closer to them. But how that that has to be the main driver, isn't it? And and we really boil it down to well-being. What do we really want for our kids, of course, to be well? And we highlight key characteristics such as kindness and curiosity as driving qualities that we would want for our children. And a school can, even a non-holistic, even a, you know, busy schools can... And aim to get closer to bringing those deeper qualities into daily life it's not easy it's a huge challenge but the teachers have to really want to do that and that takes some reflection as educators really about what do we really want
0: it's teaching story time briefly teaching stories invite us to see the world with a new perspective often featuring a wise fool or trickster animal they can be humorous with many shades of meaning shining through the story. I have told teaching stories for the past 40 years with great effect, not only for the listener, but for me, as I have learned so much about myself through recounting these stories. Today's teaching story is called The Announcement. The wise fool stood up in the marketplace and started to address the throng. Oh, people! Do you want knowledge without difficulties, truth without falsehood, attainment without effort, and progress without sacrifices? Very soon a large crowd gathered and everyone shouted, Yes, yes! Excellent, said the wise fool. I only wanted to know. You may rely upon me to tell you all about it if I ever discover any such thing. Let's have some fun interpreting this teaching story. Become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators and you have access to our detailed comments on how this story applies to education and parenting. Of course, that's just our perspective. The fun comes with community dialogue as the many shades of the teaching story come alive. See you there. So you've brought... You, you've really uh, emphasized, I think, the teachers and the parents, as has Josette in our work, um, and I just think that is just absolutely critical to just bring, because there's a quality of self, at first, in my opinion, that holds the basis for this kind of opportunity to unfold. Mm-hmm. And it, without that quality of self, it, there's it's just technique, and technique is not going to work. Right um so there's that and then uh the other some other f- uh, folks who have been on the podcast have also said i just ask people to do a little bit even uh if they have some as long as they have that quality of self beginning to work and most people have especially in the education profession and then they, they lose it they get swallowed up or or especially in America, you know, turned around pretty strongly by the economic intensities and so on. But that just to bring something forward, because I have found, and I'm asking for your uh, take on this, but I have found that if you touch well-being in somewhere, then it's, it's like an inexorable force Mm -hmm. moving forward in us and it and I even see most of the dysfunction in the world because well-being keeps wanting to come forward, mm-hmm. and it's pushing up what's in its way. Right, that's yeah, a beautiful way of seeing it. Uh, I, I love that, and
1: I'd agree with you. Um, you know, we go into schools, and sometimes the directors will want the whole staff to get the same message, but they worry about the skeptics. You know, and but and then we do it a whole day of. Professional development and on mindfulness, and our, our framework is always from well from the beginning. It's being being mindful is the foundation. When we are mindful, it kind of impacts the way that we teach. So we call that being teaching mindfully. And some people will teach mindfulness to students. So it's you know being mindful, teaching mindfully, and teaching mindfulness. So the, the way we frame all of our trainings, and you know, even, very often, almost every single time we go into a school, the director will say afterwards, or whoever got us in. You know, I was worried about those guys, those skeptics, and they came up to me afterwards and said, this is the best PD we've ever had. Now, that isn't because we are the best deliverers of PD at all. It's because it's about them. It's actually about taking care of ourselves and the rationale and the science. You know, we call on, um, you know, the, I pull on a lot, Louis Cozzolino, his book on uh, and neuroscience of education, pulling all that scientific information together that shows us that how we teach is just as important as what we teach. And that, that our own well-being impacts the way that the learning in, unfolds in the learning environment. So, you know, the role of the teacher is so powerful. then says that we are neuroscientific sculptors, you know, so I tell everybody put that on their CV. <laughs> you
0: know. That's a lovely way to
1: say it. <laughs> because we literally shape the brains of the children, as parents do, that we're working with. So it's such an important role
0: and one to and and to each other, as well, the brain is a social organ, and the powerful relationships reorganizing those neural pathways it's just such a lovely thing to have the brain research backing up what what we probably know deeper in our beingness uh, just in our own reflections and process, but having the science behind us does help as well and, and just to come back to that point, you know, individual teachers
1: every now and then you get somebody who is deeply ch- touched, even in training, you know, in learning to teach this to kids, some teacher will go through a process and something will happen for them sometimes that they claim then is transformational. So it's about touching into what they really need and what motivates them, what pushes them. And they find that they a, they have a toolkit of things that they can use to breathe and ground and calm themselves in a difficult situation, and be they're becoming more self-aware. That's really the you know the, the three areas that, we, that the courses are designed around for kids and teachers: are training our attention, connecting that with the body, being able, especially to be, to be aware of the body, and building self-awareness, and then regulating our own emotions. Those are key skills for teachers as well as
0: students. Uh, and have you had success with parents as well?
1: You know, the I did um. I didn't tell parents at first in Prague what I was doing. You know, Mindfulness was only just getting into educational areas at that time that I knew of. And um, I didn't know what they'd make of it, actually, to be honest. Um, and it was a year or so in when you know, somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, Mr. Hawkins, what, what about this thing that you're teaching our kids? And I, I thought, okay, here we go. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And, and this woman told me this. She said, you know, well, the thing is, I was driving James to, to hockey the other day, and we got stuck in traffic and I hate being late, and I hate being in traffic. And I was sitting there kind of fuming, and James turned to me, and he said, hey, Mom, look, just notice your hands on the steering wheel. Look, see, now just let those relax a little bit. And so then he took her through a breathing exercise, and she said to him, look, where do you get this stuff from? <laughs> and he said, Mr. He came up with all this stuff that I didn't know he knew, you know. Mm-hmm. So I then was actually asked by parents to advertise coffee morning. And while we were doing that, we had – 85 parents at eight o'clock in the morning, which is more than we'd normally get in the small middle school at that time of day turned up while I was doing the introduction without me wanting even to, I didn't offer it. A group of parents got parents to sign up on a list and 65 of the 85 parents signed up wanting to take an eight week course for themselves because we all need, you know, a little bit of an introduction into slowing down, knowing how to use the physiology of the body to engage that, you know, parasympathetic nervous system, just to take the foot off the gas and apply the brake every now and then, just slow down in, the, in a busy day. I think we all need that.
0: Kevin, have you also? I, I, I think I thought you you were also doing work in Africa. Is that correct? With African schools?
1: Yes, I, I, I started my teaching career in in my mid thirties in the north of England in state schools in Yorkshire. And then just by chance, I was lucky to get the possibility of going out to Tanzania with my wife and children. They had two girls at that time, and a boy came later. Um, So we had Lucy and Rosa with us, and then Billy came the next year. They all grew up in in Tanzania. So it was a small town in the north of Tanzania where they already had a primary school. They wanted a junior secondary school so that the students wouldn't have to go boarding in Moshi. And, you know, my, my own transition in the state school in the UK from primary to secondary was so brutal That's what decided me not to become a teacher. I knew when I left university, the only thing I knew, didn't know what I was going to do. I knew I was not going to teach. (laughs) But (laughs) later on, when I changed my mind on that, I I deliberately wanted to be a middle school teacher because I thought there's got to be a better way of organizing that transition. And so I I then had this chance in Tanzania to start a small junior secondary school. And this was a really powerful experience that first year because there were just 30 children, different ages, we had one computer, which didn't work very well. No internet, of course. A set of dictionaries and a set of atlases, uh, two full-time teachers and a couple of part-time teachers. And we were in this kind of old building where the sunken bath was our chemistry prep room. But all of us who had that year in that, in that school, we all felt like this was one of the highlights of our teaching careers because it kind of brought us back to what, what's the essentials of a school? You know, because it's so overstuffed and overpackaged these days. What is it really about? You know, and I, I took that question with me. Even in Prague every year, I would try and pose that in different ways at the first day of the year to, to the teachers and the students. You know, what, what is a school really when you think about it? What is it really about? And, you know, in Tanzania, it was so clear. There's the parents, the school, and the teachers, and the, you know, the kids. And so I put this, this question to, um, to my teachers and students. And so, you know, when we think about it, school is just, it's just a bunch of kids and adults in a building. You know, and when you see it that way, then the question is, how can we best spend our time together? And so we ask those deeper questions of, you know, what really matters in order to help us prioritize what's going on in the school? You know, fundamentally, what is our purpose here? And sometimes we don't know. We lose track
0: of what is the narrative for a school, you know, and it's good to revisit that, I think. Well, that's a that's the basis of all holistic education. That is how holistic education, that has to be the center of the question. What are we doing yeah. here? Who are we? How are we going to allow well-being to come forward? Is it the core of all, edu- of all holistic education approaches? Yeah. So you are doing it naturally, if you will and yeah. and so the evolution to mind to mind well and all that was kind of foreordained uh, in those experiences right. just beautiful so now with the program run uh, for mind well is it growing is it expanding i mean uh, what what happens there do you do a lot of traveling are you centered always in prague
1: we are based in Prague, although we're actually about to move to Valencia in May. We're going to be living, that's going to be our new base. I've been in Prague for 15 years now, and we're ready to, to try a, a new area. So um, I'm brushing up my Spanish, and we're off to, to live in Valencia. So we, we do some work in the Czech Republic, but, you know, my, I don't speak Czech. It's embarrassing, and I found it such a difficult language to learn. And, but we do have some great Czech friends and colleagues and educators. So we support some movements here in in, in Czech Republic, but really the most of our work is, you know, we just came back from Spain and next month we're off to Lima and then it's Cape town. And, you know, we we literally are going around the world at the moment. So it's expanded a lot. I think since the book got published, Um, that's helped a lot. And we, we're actually having to think, okay, what's the next way we want. We set new goals in order to just not travel so much but still to be able to offer opportunities for people in, in to access this in as many ways as we can.
0: Um, Kevin, I'm I always want to give everyone I speak with a chance to say things that I'm not asking because I mm-hmm. can't ask the questions for everyone and everything. And I'm just wondering what what message do you want to bring to us that I'm not just doing in terms of an interview here? Hmm.
1: That's a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah. Well, there's so many things that come to mind, but I guess top of the list for me would be that we have a tradition of creating places of learning where we really reflect and perpetuate certain things that are happening in the world, and in some ways the imbalance in the world. There's a lot of inequality in the world, and in some ways there's an imbalance, I think, of head and heart. You know, that we are, there's no doubting that we're a very clever species. You know, look at our technology. It's extraordinary but we're not so clever when it comes to sharing the planet with each other or with other species. So we're lacking wisdom. And, you know, how can we create places of learning where there is a central focus, not just an additional little bit on social emotional skills, but actually it's central to the the mission of a school within a system that understanding myself, how does my mind work? How does my body work? How do my feelings work? How do these things work together and sometimes trip me up? Now, this needs to be much more central, understanding myself, connecting with other people, understanding the environment or the system within which I'm operating. This should be the driver, I think, that key hub of the school. And we need to equip our young people to be able to face some of the challenges that you know are coming. They're already here. And our young people are in schools now, in the hands of the teachers that we're working with, are dealing and facing, going to face a complex range of problems that will require. A whole range of collaboration skills, of of human capacities that that we we need to create a situation, an environment in which we're allowing the space for them to pull on all of that range of human capacities, not some narrow range that we've, you know, for historical educational reasons have decided is the mission of school. And if you give me a minute more, I could just go into a little bit on Bloom, something that Came up for me when I was
0: rock writing. and roll. Okay. Do your thing. That's what this is for. Thank you. I mean,
1: it just this came home to me when I was writing about Amy and I wrote this book um, uh, last year, and based on our work and um, mindful teacher, mindful school. And when, when I was researching for it, you know, I know about Bloom's Taxonomy. Of course, it's very well known. Not everybody knows it. I say to teachers, if you don't know it, it probably affected you because the teachers that taught you will have been impacted by it. But you know, I, I frame it in some ways in a way that. You know, in some sense, maybe people were saying to Bloom in the 50s, you know, American government, perhaps, I don't know exactly, but let's stop for a moment and decide on a list of things that are really important skills for life, you know, and, and that list could inform education. And Professor Bloom, you know, went into a room with his committee and came up with a list, Bloom's Taxonomy. Wonderful list. You know, people still argue about it these days. I knew about it. What, what I didn't know was that Professor Bloom didn't have a committee. He had three committees. One on cognitive skills, which is the list that we have today. One on psychomotor physical skills. And one committee on the effective, on emotional skills. Which, of course, mind, heart, and body is that balance that you get whenever you stop and think, what should we really be doing in our schools? What what should be driving our education? No, the, the, the message that comes from all progressive education is that balance that will allow a young person to develop and become a mature adult, become well and healthy. But it's no accident that we've forgotten about those two aspects and focused on the cognitive because of the pervasive model of industrial education that although our schools look different still informs a lot of our thinking. So for me, when we're working with trying to change schools, and which is such a difficult thing to change, it comes back to us as educators, our own conditioning about what learning is really about. And we have to touch into that, you know, the deeper level of what drives us, how we were educated. If we want to then see the whole thing, understand how we operate within that system, see our own biases, and then open the door to what is really important and agree, make agreements on that. Oh,
0: thank you. That's so well said. Um, I, I've often said that teacher training and teacher development is the key to really reorganizing education, and we can bypass all the political stuff, all the economic stuff, because if teachers are uh, allowed to bring forth their own qualities of self, they'll find it in their students. Of course, uh, my work and Josette's work and how these capacities unfold, just put it all together. And so it is really a call to educators of the world. I was so disappointed, um, I looked on, uh, in America, Stanford and Columbia Teachers College are the two, uh, what would it be, just the the places for um, educational theory and practice, and there's very little about this on either of their teacher training sites, at least when I looked about six months ago.
1: And that has to be the key, doesn't it? We, we need to get at least an introduction in this way into teacher training. In, we work with a teacher training organization in Denmark in in. In Aarhus, they have a beautiful program. In Denmark, you have to train in relational competence as a teacher, trainee teacher. And they've tried also bringing mindfulness training into that mix, and it's it's been quite useful because in the mindfulness, it's not the only way to achieve what you're saying, about touching into the self. There are many different avenues, of course. This is one that can help people learn some basic skills that build self-awareness, and also as a teacher, presence. It actually helps you become more present when you're more present you're more sensitive to the needs of students in the learning environment you can orchestrate it more skillfully as tish Jennings calls it and actually you can create the space it's all about space isn't it creating the space for for, for kids to learn in and chris willard said a beautiful thing i he already got it from somewhere else i'm not sure i heard him say no the best way to create stressed out kids is to surround them with stressed out adults <laughs> of course the best <laughs> way to create caring calm compassionate kids is to you know, have parents and teachers and adults around them who themselves now how to touch into being more calm and present.
0: Well, Kevin, I, I I feel so much uh, connection and with you, and and I'm so appreciative of all you're doing, and and we could talk forever, but I guess we're out of time for right now. So I just want to say a deep, heartfelt thank you for being a guest on the on the podcast, but also very deeply for your work and commitment to bringing all that you're doing forward. Thank you so very, very much.
1: Uh, thank you, Bar, for creating this space because, you know, we know being heard is such a key thing and I feel listened to and heard because you've created that space for for, for this to be said. So thank you.
0: Meetings with Remarkable Educators is brought to you in part by our friends and supporters on Patreon. If you enjoy our podcast and want access to enriching gifts for parents and educators, please visit patreon.com slash Remarkable Educators, that's all one word, Remarkable Educators, and consider becoming a patron. Your support means the world to us and will allow us to continue this essential project. Our sound engineer is Dimitri Young. Our webmaster is Nathan Young. And transcription and production is by Josette Lovemore. All podcasts are transcribed with show notes and can be found at remarkable-educators.com. This is Ba Lovemore reminding you that holistic relationships with children leads to joy and self-knowledge with the adults in their lives. With respect for you and for children everywhere. See you next time.